So I want to start tonight by talking a little bit about Christopher Columbus. Not what you were expecting? <laughs> and I'll warn you in advance that this is a metaphor. The poet John Kilgore called Christopher Columbus the patron saint of everyone who misses the turnoff and winds up in Cleveland. When I was a school child, I learned a pretty simplified and rather whitewashed version of the events surrounding Christopher Columbus's first encounter with the Western Hemisphere. But even back then, a central feature of the story was that Columbus had basically made a big mistake, that he had landed in the Americas by accident, despite his planning. As we all know, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue after many years of planning, some heavy lobbying, and he sailed west, headed for India, of course. That's where he was going, that's what he told everyone he was doing, that's what he had pitched to his patrons. There was a situation where the Ottoman Empire was making it difficult to get to India over land by the spice route, as Europeans had been doing for centuries. And he was gonna find a sea route which would solve this problem and make everyone involved fabulously wealthy and convert a few heathens along the way. But the reason that it took him so long to organize his voyage is that most of the people that he pitched the idea to thought he was just out of his mind. It wasn't so much that they thought the world was flat, you know, like they used to tell us in school. We kind of know now that educated people of that time didn't really believe that the, the world was flat. But they did think that he had just grossly miscalculated, that the distance around to Asia was much greater than what he was saying, and that it was just never gonna work. He was gonna be lost at sea along with the ships and the cargo and the crew, all of his patrons' investment, and it would just be an exercise in futility. But what actually ended up happening was option C. None of the above. <laughs> Instead, Columbus ran into this huge mass of land that no one in Europe really was quite sure was there at the time. It was something that Columbus, with all of his optimism, didn't foresee. It was something that his patrons, with all of their pessimism, didn't foresee. It was something that was, in fact, far more momentous than anyone could have possibly foreseen something that was far beyond the scope of what he had originally intended. So in a way, this is a good metaphor for practice, for this voyage that we're undertaking here. After making all sorts of preparations, plans, arrangements, perhaps extending over a long period of time, we've managed to launch ourselves on this voyage. And for many of us, there are people who have implied more or less directly, that we are also on a fool's errand. <laughs> and it will all come to naught, or worse. We'll fall off the edge of the world. <laughs> and very likely, we've set forth with various expectations, whether we've realized it yet or not, about where we're headed and where we're going to put down anchor by the end of this journey. But the point of this talk tonight is that really, we have no idea where we're going, which is the very nature of a journey of exploration and discovery. 
by definition, when we head out to survey uncharted territory, whether it's internal or external, we don't know what we're going to encounter, no matter how carefully we've planned, how much we've prepared. We may or may not arrive at whatever our personal spiritual equivalent of Columbus's India is. We may arrive somewhere else altogether, and we certainly have no way of knowing what we'll encounter along the way. Nonetheless, expectations can be very difficult to let go of, and we see this in the story of Columbus as well. After that first landing in the Caribbean islands, he spent the rest of his life trying to prove that he had really found India. <laughs> he just couldn't let go of his fixation on that particular goal. And it can be the same in our practice. We can become so fixated on what we're expecting, what we're wanting and hoping, that we actually miss what's really happening, which might be extraordinary. So our expectations can become blinders that narrow our view of what we're actually doing and what we're actually learning through this journey. So ironically, our expectations can actually hamper our ability to realize what it is we're expecting <laughs> because we're not open to all of the options, all of the opportunities that are actually available. Early in my practice, I heard this classic Zen story about the danger of expectations. A young man approached a great master and asked to become his student and learn his art. How long, asked the prospective student, will it take me to become a master like you? Fifteen years, replied the master. So long, exclaimed the student in dismay. Well, in your case, said the master, reconsidering, mm, 20 years. <laughs> the young man was alarmed, but he persisted. He said, what if I practice all day and all night in every waking hour, devoting all of my energy to mastering this art? 25 years, replied the master. <laughs> the young man now began to get angry. He said, you're talking nonsense. How can it be that if I work harder, it will take longer to achieve my goal? And the master said simply, if you have one eye fixed on your destination, then you have only one eye left with which to find your way. So the point of the story isn't that we shouldn't make our best effort in practice, that we shouldn't try to do our best. And it's not that we shouldn't have aspirations, some direction of where we're headed over the long run. In fact, it's very important to have some sense of our direction in spiritual life. One element of the Eightfold Path, this path of practice that the Buddha laid out for us, is what's usually called uh, right intention or skillful intention, which we could also think of as right aspiration. That's kind of the spirit of it. So it includes the aspirations to cultivate kindness, compassion, and gentleness, the aspiration to cultivate generosity, and the, the ability to let go of what we don't really need what's no longer useful and healthy in our lives. So the Buddha was very clear that we do need to have a helpful understanding of the direction that our path is leading and healthy aspiration to follow it. But aspirations are very different from expectations. 
Aspirations acknowledge the open-ended nature of this journey that we're on, the unpredictability of it. They focus on the big picture and the long term without making demands that things unfold in a certain way. And they reflect the wisdom that our lives are intimately intertwined with others around us, focusing on the well-being of all and not just our own isolated desires for personal gratification. So for example, some aspirations that we express here a lot are the aspiration for freedom from suffering, for, for liberation of the heart and mind, or the aspiration to be a benefit to all beings in some way. Aspirations implicitly include a great deal of faith that if we walk this path with sincerity, then good things will come of it. That we can trust the truth to reveal itself in just that way that we need to see it in our own unique bodies and minds and lives. Expectations, on the other hand, are really a manifestation of fear of a lack of trust in the process, a lack of faith. They can be a way of trying to micromanage our unfolding, as if we need to constantly monitor our progress to make sure that we're doing okay, to make sure that we're doing it right. As if we have to constantly keep an eye on ourselves and try to reassure ourselves that we're on the right path. So expectations can reflect a basic discomfort with the unpredictable nature of the spiritual journey. And that quality of doubt can be a huge stumbling block to our actual progress. It actually creates a climate in the mind that's unconducive to the very openings that we're longing for. In the late 1990s, I spent a year as a Buddhist nun in Burma, practicing with a very venerable teacher called Sayada Upandita. And at one point in my practice, I had gotten into a very tight, contracted space. I was trying really hard to be diligent and follow all the instructions and the guidelines of the practice center, but I just wasn't seeing the results that I'd hoped for. And I was really getting exhausted and dejected. And one day I was doing walking meditation outside of the meditation hall, just kind of stomping along, <laughs> trying to be mindful, but really feeling pretty dejected. And Sayadaw passed by with a couple of his attendants on the way somewhere. And he stopped kind of suddenly in front of me as if he had just thought of something, something had just occurred to him. And he said, tomorrow I will go to the forest for one day, meaning that he was going out to his country retreat center that was a couple of hours away from the city center where I was practicing. A place similar to IMS here, kind of out in the country, a couple of hours from the big city. And he said, you will come tomorrow after lunch. And then he continued on his way. And at that point, I hadn't been out of the monastery for about two months. And I really didn't feel like leaving. You know, I'd been working so hard to develop some degree of concentration and mindfulness. Not as much as I had hoped for, but at least something. I could feel that something was happening. And I just knew that this trip was really going to disrupt my practice. 
And I knew that Sayada knew it, so I didn't know why he wanted me to go. But when Sayada says go, you go. <laughs> so I went. And when we arrived at the Forest Center, there was another American woman there waiting at the gate, another nun. And she was going to be taking the truck that we had come in out to the country back to the city. She was finishing up a period of a year in retreat at the Forest Center. So as our paths crossed by the truck, we had a chance to talk for just a few minutes. And she told me a little bit about what her experience had been there in her time in retreat. And she said that the experience had been challenging you know, in many ways, as we would expect. But that the biggest obstacle she had encountered had actually been her own expectations. She had done many retreats, just like this one in the West. And she felt she had made great progress on her path. She was satisfied with her practice. And she said she came to Burma with a feeling that it would be kind of like getting her diploma in meditation. <laughs> she had done all the, kind of, all the right kind of preparation. And she'd come to Burma for a year, you know, a good long chunk of time. And she thought that there she'd be able to have the big breakthrough, you know, at least the first stage of enlightenment. And then she'd basically be set for life. <laughs> but what happened when she actually got to Burma and started practicing was that she was in constant torment due to her expectations, constantly evaluating how it was going and what milestones she might have reached. And was she going to make it to her goal in that year that she had to work with? And she went on like this for months, she said, just basically worrying about how her practice was going, rather than just fully devoting herself to the practice. At some point, many months into her retreat, she finally gave up. She decided that there was just no way she was going to reach her goal, and that she was going to have to give up and try to get through the remaining months of her time there as best she could. And that was the turning point in her practice. She started practicing then without expectations, just kind of taking things one day at a time, one breath at a time, one step at a time, without looking back or ahead. And it completely changed her experience. She said that it was only when she had stopped fixating on enlightenment that she could actually do the things that would eventually help to lead her there. And she said that she was prepared to spend the rest of her life on that path whether or not she ever realized anything that she might call enlightenment. So her expectations had been transformed into aspirations. There's a great story from the commentaries on the Pali Canon, which is the ancient collection of teachings that the style of practice and the teachings that we offer here are based on. And the story deals with the subject of expectations and practice. It's the story of the venerable Maha Siva, who was a very prominent Buddhist teacher in ancient India. He was said to have taught the Buddhist scripture at 18 different Dharma centers, and that thousands of monks and nuns had become enlightened under his guidance. One day, one of his enlightened students was sitting and reflecting on the marvels of enlightenment, the innumerable benefits and virtues that it had brought him, and how wonderful it was. And it occurred to him that the benefits of his great teacher, Mahasiva's enlightenment, must be even greater, must be even more profound and impressive. So using his supernormal powers, you know, as enlightened beings were wont to do, 
he investigated his teacher's mind from a distance. And he was very much surprised to find that Mahasiva was not even a little bit enlightened, not at all. He was simply an ordinary, unenlightened person, what in the ancient teachings is called an ordinary worldling. And the monk thought to himself, this is no good. How can it be that this great teacher that's been a benefit to so many, helped so many along the path, is not yet himself enlightened? So using his supernormal powers again, he flew up into the air, off to Mahasiva's monastery, in order to remind him to attend to his own practice. And he landed a little way off from the monastery. You know, he didn't want to create too much of a stir. And he approached Mahasiva and asked for an interview with him. But Mahasiva said that he was too busy at the moment. He was busy with some other students. So the monk asked him, well, how about while you're waiting at the gate of the monastery to go out to the village for alms round? But Mahasiva said that he was going to be busy then, too. He had some other things going on at that time. Well, how about while you're having lunch? After you've collected your alms, we could sit and talk a little bit over lunch. But Mahasiva was going to be busy then, too. How about while we're walking back from the village after we've eaten? He was going to be busy. How about during the afternoon rest period? They could just sit quietly and talk somewhere. He was going to be busy. How about while he was getting ready for bed? He was going to be busy. At every moment of the day, the teacher had responsibilities, duties. He was going to be occupied. Sound familiar? <laughs> and the monk said to him then, Sir, the way you're living, you don't even have time to die. You should take the time to practice your own meditation while you can. You've been living like a chair, supporting others, but not yourself. And with this, the monk flew back off into the sky to his own retreat. At which point, Mahasiva realized that this former student of his hadn't come to learn from him at all, but to teach him. And he felt quite embarrassed, actually, that his student had clearly attained great heights of realization while he was still just an ordinary worldling. So he resolved to do something about that and to reach a similar, if not greater, attainment. Early the next morning, Mahasiva left his monastery to go into retreat. But he only took a few essential items with him. And he didn't even tell anybody that he was leaving or where he was going. He thought, it ought to be pretty easy for somebody like me to get enlightened. I'll be back before they even miss me. Two or three days should be plenty of time. And then I'll be able to show them what awesome realizations I've attained. And at that point, it just happened to be two days before the full moon. So Mahasiva thought, oh, this is perfect. I'll practice for, for two days, and I'll get enlightened on the full moon day, just like the Buddha. So Mahasiva found a nice spot in a secluded little valley near a village where he could go for alms. And he settled down to practice. And the full day moon came around, and the full day moon passed. And Mahasiva was somewhat surprised to find that he wasn't enlightened yet. But he wasn't too put out. He thought, well, I just need a little bit more time. Two days isn't very long, after all. The rainy season is just getting started, so I'll do a three-month retreat during the rains, as the Buddha recommended. And then I'll be able to return home triumphant at the end of it. So Mahasiva kept practicing, and the three months passed, and he still wasn't enlightened. Now, Mahasiva really started to become alarmed 
because it was well known that many monks and nuns became enlightened during the three-month retreat, and yet he hadn't managed it. So he really started to feel inadequate, and the high opinion that he'd had of himself started to crumble. And he sat down, and he wept bitterly with disappointment and despair. From then on, it's said that Mahasiva kept his bedroll folded up. He spent all of his time practicing intensively and didn't even lie down to rest, fearing that he might miss valuable practice time. And in this way, he passed 30 years in retreat. And at the end of every rainy season, when he found that yet another year had passed and he still hadn't attained enlightenment, he would sit down and cry with discouragement and self-pity. At the end of the 30th year, as he was sitting and crying, as was his habit, he happened to notice the sound of someone else also crying nearby. And this caught him somewhat by surprise, since his little valley was very secluded, and he rarely encountered another human being there. So he called out, who's there? Who's crying? I am a deva, sir, came back the response, a, a celestial being that was passing through the valley. What are you doing crying here? asked Mahasiva. Well, I was just passing by and noticed how you were practicing. And based on your example, I figured I could attain two or three stages of enlightenment, at least, just by crying. So I thought I'd give it a try. <laughs> and with that, the deva let out a little laugh and disappeared. The devas are like that sometimes. So this really caught Mahasiva off guard. And he thought to himself, has it come to this, that even, even the passing devas are mocking me? But then he reflected on what the deva had said, and he realized, this, realized that this deva had a point. That as hard as he had been practicing for so many years, all of the time it had been with an attitude of dejection and self-pity. And he had never seen it. He'd never realized it. It was as if he could see into his own heart and mind for the first time. So Mahasiva directed his attention to his difficult emotions, seeing them with clarity and compassion. And little by little, his mind calmed, and his discouragement abated. And he began to develop mindfulness and concentration and insight. And in this way, Mahasiva eventually became one of the Arahants a fully enlightened being, freed from all forms of suffering. So this story makes some very important points about our relationship to expectations in practice. The most obvious is just what a hindrance our expectations can become if we're not aware of them, if we don't recognize them, if we get caught up in them, then we can end up in a holding pattern, just circling round and round our ideas of what should be happening so that we're never fully able to connect with what is happening. Like Mahasiva, we may be striving very hard. We may be making a great effort, but just not getting anywhere because we only have that one eye with which to find our way. Now, most of us probably haven't come on this retreat expecting full enlightenment. Maybe some of us have, I don't know. <laughs> but expectations can come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. You know, we can have expectations for what should happen here on the retreat. 
We can have expectations for what should happen after the retreat, what we should take with, the, with us from here out into our lives. We, should, we can have expectations for the day, the day of retreat, or for the sitting, or for this walking, for this breath, for the step, for the next moment. And to the extent that these expectations go unrecognized, to the extent that they go unwelcome, we're, limi- we're really limiting our view of the truth, the truth of the actual experience of this mind and body, just as it is. Another point that the story makes has to do with the futility of disappointment, of discouragement and self-pity. Not that they shouldn't arise, but to the extent that we buy into their stories and allow them to remain outside the scope of our attention, they can really take over our heart and mind and stifle our practice. In the Abhidhamma, the teachings that are sometimes referred to as the Buddhist psychology, there's quite a sophisticated and comprehensive map of the various forms of suffering that are available to us as human beings. So there's the suffering of pain, just the simple suffering that comes from experiencing unpleasant things in the body and the mind. There's the suffering of change, that suffering that we experience from losing things that we like and want. There's the suffering of insecurity, that kind of deep intuitive knowing that we all have, that there's nothing in this world that we can really hold on to and keep. And the list could go on and on. (laughs) But I find it interesting that there's actually a special place reserved for the type of suffering that's associated with the disappointment or discouragement that comes from not getting what we want in practice. That's its own particular kind of dukkha, suffering. It's called niramisa dukkha, or kind of literally suffering that's not associated with sense desire. And it's a little bit different from the usual run-of-the-mill dukkha or suffering, which generally has to do with having unpleasant experiences in the sense sphere, in the sense realm, that we don't like. So seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, feeling, or thinking something that we don't like, that we don't enjoy. But this kind of dukkha is a little bit different because it isn't associated with any of those things. It isn't associated with any of those external experiences. It isn't going to be alleviated by having a nice cup of tea or a nice nap. It really reaches beyond that level to the realm of our spiritual endeavors. And it's important enough and prevalent enough now as it was 2,500 years ago, that the Buddha thought it deserved a category of its own. And the Buddha also said that this type of suffering should be overcome by mindfulness, awareness, just simply bringing our attention to the disappointment and discouragement itself. Mahasi Sayadaw, who was a great meditation master of the 20th century, and was kind of the grandfather of this style and tradition of the Buddhist teachings that we offer here. He gave the following very simple instructions for how to deal with this mental state. He said, when experiencing distress not associated with sense desires, know that distress not associated with sense desires is being experienced. (laughs) So all we need to do is not buy into the story of the discouragement but instead bring it right into our practice as just another experience to be known and understood. 
Mahasi Sayadaw doesn't say that this kind of, of distress needs to be forcibly eradicated or that it shouldn't arise in the first place. It will arise when the conditions come together to produce it, just like every other experience. And I don't think that there's ever been a sincere spiritual seeker that didn't experience periods of doubt, disappointment, or discouragement. Even the Buddha himself had to face self-doubt on the night of his enlightenment, when Mara, who's sort of the embodiment of all human difficult mental states, when Mara came to ask him just who he thought he was to be sitting there under the Bodhi tree, seeking full enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Who do you think you are? He said to him. But the, in the face of these kinds of difficult mental states, the trick is just to remember, as the Buddha did, to be mindful, to be aware of them, to just regard them as we would any other passing thought or feeling, and to say to Mara, as the Buddha did, I see you. I see you there. I see what you're up to. It's relatively easy within the context of a retreat like this to fall into the fallacy of thinking that our thoughts and feelings about practice somehow deserve a special exemption from mindfulness. You know, we tend to realize pretty quickly that thinking about the past, fantasizing about the future, speculative conjecture, theoretical thought are pretty unproductive within the context of what we're doing here. But we may then turn around and indulge our thoughts and feelings about the practice itself, about what we're doing and how we're doing and how it's going and what's happening, thinking that somehow those thoughts are different from other thoughts, that they're somehow more important or more relevant or more useful, more valid. But in fact, our thoughts and feelings about how our practice is going really need to be treated with exactly the same quality of mindfulness and investigation that we bring to any other experience that arises. Because ultimately, they are exactly like any other experience that arises. There's really nothing special about them. But if we lose sight of this and buy into them, then, then, they, then they can really become a hindrance. They can actually keep us from finding the satisfaction in our practice that we're craving. Another lesson that we can learn from the story of Mahasiva is the importance of finding a good teacher, someone who can point out to us when we're stuck in our practice. Because Mahasiva was so learned and so accustomed to being in the teaching role himself, he just assumed that he'd be able to navigate his way through his own practice himself. But in fact, once he got going, he simply didn't have the perspective on his own process to see how he was caught up in his expectations. If he'd been working with a teacher, he probably would have had this pointed out to him quite pretty quickly, <coughs> rather than having to wait 30 years for a snide deva to come along and point it out to him. And this is really true for all of us, for all of us here, that no matter how long we've been practicing, no matter how much ground we've covered, no matter how much territory we've charted, we never really know what's waiting around the next bend for us on the spiritual path, which is actually a good thing, because otherwise we wouldn't be exploring anymore. We wouldn't be expanding our horizons anymore. 
So it's really important to have a teacher who can help us to navigate as we go along. There's another story from the commentaries that deals with this topic of the importance of finding a good teacher. So just as we can have expectations about ourselves in practice, how we ought to be doing and what we ought to be accomplishing, we can also have expectations regarding our teachers on the path of who they ought to be and how they ought to behave. And this can also become a hindrance if we let it get in the way of getting the guidance that we need. In the time of the Buddha, there was a monk named Potila. And he was apparently one of these people that today we would say that he had a photographic memory. And it was said that he had memorized the complete teachings of six previous Buddhas in his various lifetimes. So this was kind of a habit of his. This was a long-standing ability that he, he carried with him. And during the time of our historical Buddha, the Sakyamuni Buddha, he did the same thing. He memorized the complete teachings all of the discourses that the Buddha gave to various groups of people. And because he had this great store of kind of academic knowledge, he was sought out as a teacher by many people. And he was very satisfied with his knowledge and with the power and clarity of his intellectual faculties. And so he didn't bother to meditate. But one thing really irked him, and that was that whenever he met with the Buddha, the Buddha would address him as foolish potila. <laughs> and he just couldn't understand this. He didn't get it. He thought, I know the enlightened one's entire teachings by heart, and I've taught scores of students. You know, what's with this foolish potila business? But after this had gone on for a while, and he'd reflected on it quite a bit, potila realized, you know, it must be because I haven't meditated. So I don't have any practical knowledge to go with all of my theoretical knowledge. So he decided to take care of that. He thought, I'll go off and I'll do a period of retreat and get enlightened. And then there won't be any more of this foolish potila business. So he asked around about good places to practice. And he heard about one place that sounded really great. It was some distance away in a secluded little forest hermitage. But it was said to be inhabited by 30 arahants, who were all excellent meditation teachers. And it was said that this was a good place to get enlightened quickly. <laughs> and Venerable, Venerable Potila thought, that sounds like the place for me. So he arranged his affairs and gathered up his things. And he set off for the secluded little monastery. And eventually, he found the place. And it was really pretty rustic. It wasn't actually a monastery at all, but more just like a clearing in the woods where this group of arahants had set up camp. And they lived very simply, sleeping and sitting at the roots of the trees and making do with very little. So it was very basic and very rustic. And Venerable Potila was a bit daunted when he saw the living conditions. But as he walked into the camp, he could feel that there was something special about this place. There was a quality of stillness and tranquility about it that he didn't, he'd never encountered before. And the arahants were all moving about mindfully taking care of their business with an air of serenity and joy that really moved him. And he thought, these guys know something that I don't. And he began to feel for the first time a real aspiration 
to purify his heart and mind, rather than just to prove himself to the Buddha. So he approached the eldest monk and asked for meditation instructions. And the senior arahant kind of sized him up and sensed that even though Venerable Potila had some sincerity of aspiration, he was still pretty impressed with himself. He was still pretty full of himself. So the monk told him that, well, he didn't really have time to take on any more students right now. And he sent him to talk to the second most senior monk. He said, go ask him. Maybe he has time for another student right now. And the second most senior monk spoke with Upatila a bit and came to basically the same conclusion as the first. So he sent him to talk to the third most senior monk, who sent him to talk to the fourth most senior monk, who sent him to the fifth most senior monk, and so on down the line. And as he descended through the ranks of seniority, asking for guidance first from monks who were his seniors, and then from monks who were his peers, and then from monks who were his juniors, he started to get the message that these arahants really couldn't care less that he had memorized the entire teachings of the Buddha. And he became increasingly determined to learn what it was that they knew that he didn't. Eventually, Venerable Potila found himself asking for meditation instructions from the youngest arahant in the group, who just happened to be a seven-year-old novice. As I mentioned the other night, the Buddha used to say that he taught the Dharma in such a way that a seven-year-old child could understand it. And so we find these stories in the, in the teachings of seven-year-old arahants running around. So Venerable Potila found himself asking for instruction from this young monk, which just a short time before would have seemed preposterous to him. You know, there's no way he could have imagined doing this. But by, the, by this time, Venerable Potila really had no pride left. He was just desperate for somebody at this monastery to give him meditation instructions. So he paid his respects to the little Arahant as humbly as he could and asked for his guidance. And the novice could see that Venerable Potila was in earnest, but he wasn't sure that he'd really be able to place his trust in him and follow his instructions diligently. So the little novice demurred a bit. He said, Oh, venerable sir, I'm still very young and not very knowledgeable. I am the one that should learn from you. But venerable Potila was having none of it, and he persisted in his request. Well, if you will follow my instructions exactly, said the novice, then I will teach you how to practice meditation. At which venerable Potila replied with great fervor, even if you ask me to walk through fire, I'll do whatever you say. Really, said the novice, <laughs> who was, after all, only seven years old. <laughs> well then, go and walk into the pond. And he pointed at a nearby pond that the community used to draw its water from. And without a moment's hesitation, Venerable Potila immediately walked off toward the pond and started wading in. But just as the edge of his robe skimmed the water, the little novice called him back and agreed to teach him meditation. So Venerable Potila began to practice with the guidance of the little Arahant. And it's said that because Venerable Potila was so sincere and trusted his teacher so completely, he made very quick progress in his meditation and avoided many pitfalls. And in time, with practice, Venerable Potila too became one of the Arahants.
So this story really points out the importance of recognizing that the important teachers in our lives and on our spiritual journey don't always come in the forms that we expect. On the most literal level, they may not be the specific people that we expect, the specific people that we had hoped to be our guides. They may not be the most senior monk at the monastery, so to speak. But this lesson also applies equally to all of the other types of teachers that we encounter on our path, all of the difficult circumstances, all of the difficult experiences, all of the difficult habits and tendencies of our minds and bodies that aren't really what we want to have to learn from in our practice. But in fact, our most important teacher during our time here may turn out to be our VV, our Vipassana Vendetta. <laughs> that one fellow yogi doing that really annoying and clearly inappropriate thing that just keeps intruding on our practice. Or it may turn out to be that pain in the back, or in the knee, or in the neck, or in the head, that just won't let up, no matter how we try to work with it. Or it may turn out to be that obsessive thought pattern that we feel like we really have to let go of before we can get down to practice. So important teachers come in all different sorts of shapes and sizes. But if we're attached to certain ideas about who and what we're willing to learn from, and who and what we're not willing to learn from, then we may miss out on all sorts of opportunities to grow and awaken. You know, if Venerable Potila had decided that he just wasn't willing to accept a seven-year-old meditation teacher, he may have wandered off into the woods to practice on his own and ended up spinning his wheels for 30 years, like Mahasiva. So at those times when we feel like we're up against something in our practice that's really impeding our progress, it's worth reflecting on whether maybe this is our seven-year-old meditation teacher come to show us just exactly what it is we need to learn in that moment. And whether we can muster the simplicity and the sincerity and the humility to listen to what it has to tell us. There's another story from the commentaries about a monk called Nangala. This man had been a very poor agricultural laborer, working in other people's fields from sunrise to sunset, day in and day out, doing very demanding work and earning just barely enough to keep alive. One day, a passing monk saw him hard at work in the fields with his heavy plow and his tattered clothes and urged him to leave that life behind and become a monk, where he would have the possibility of gaining great benefit in exchange for all of his hard work, as opposed to his current life where, we, where he worked so hard for almost nothing. Now, Nangala didn't really understand at that point what would be involved in becoming a monk, but he figured it couldn't be any worse than the life he was living then. This is not too different from how a lot of us come to practice. <laughs> so he went along with the monk, carrying his plow with him. And when he got to the monastery, he was ordained. And when he formally undertook the precept to give up worldly, worldly possessions, as Buddhist monks do, his preceptor told him to go and leave his old clothes and his plow in the hollow of a tree somewhere outside the monastery. And for a while, the venerable Nangala was quite content at the monastery. He ate better, he slept better, he was treated better, and he enjoyed the quiet and the ease compared with his former life of hard labor. 
But after a while, he got a bit bored with his practice, and he started running into difficult mental states. And one day he thought, well, this has been nice, but I think I've had enough. And as he started to make his way out of the monastery, he happened to catch a glimpse of his old clothes and his plow that he had left in the hollow of a nearby tree. And seeing those reminders of the oppression of his former life, he immediately lost all desire to leave the monastery. And in fact, he was filled with a renewed sense of purpose to persevere in his practice and to realize the peace and freedom that he knew that others there had. But he still didn't have an easy time at the monastery after this. He would frequently feel frustrated and bored. But now, whenever those feelings arose in him, he would go out and visit the tree where he had left his plow and reflect on the misery of his former life. And that would give him the energy and the inspiration to carry on just a little bit longer. It's said that during the whole time he was practicing, he would go out to his tree every few days, over and over again, just as if he was going for interviews. And this didn't go unnoticed by the other monks at the monastery. And when they asked him what on earth he was doing, he would say, I need to go and consult my teacher. <laughs> and for many years, his fellow monks teased him about this. So they were quite surprised when one day he suddenly stopped visiting the tree. And they went and asked the Buddha about this, and he said that it was very simple. The venerable Nangala had become one of the Arahants. And I think we all have teachers like this in our practice at one time or another. Those reminders of difficulties and suffering that we may, we may revisit over and over again. But if we're willing to learn from them, then they can be a powerful source of inspiration, a powerful source of strength and patience and perseverance, even though they're rarely the teachers that we would wish for. When we come for a period of retreat, we're bound to come into this journey with certain ideas about it. And that's okay. It's a lot of work to get here. It's a lot of work to stay here. And we wouldn't do it if we didn't expect to get something out of it. But it's also important to keep an open mind about what should happen once we're actually here. A retreat like this is really an epic adventure. It's equal to anything in history or fantasy. It's a journey into the unknown, and we're bound to learn from it. There's actually no way we can avoid learning from it. We just have no idea beforehand what we're going to learn or how. But that's really part of the joy of this process, the joy of discovery, the joy of seeing how our own unique path unfolds moment by moment and day by day, even in our most difficult moments just exactly as it should, just exactly as it must. I'd like to end with this poem from the great Zen master, Bilbo Baggins, <laughs> otherwise known as the Hobbit. And this was a song that he sang to himself as he walked the path of his own epic adventure. The road goes ever on and on, down from the door where it began, 
Now far ahead the road has gone, and I must follow if I can, pursuing it with eager feet until it joins some larger way where many paths and errands meet. And whither then? I cannot say. Let's sit for a minute. If we have one eye fixed on our goal, then we have only one eye with which to find our way. <laughs> 